Well, I can't think of a better song to lead us into the text that the Lord has for us this morning in John chapter 16. So I would invite you to turn there, John chapter 16. If you're using one of the Bibles in the seats in front of you, uh, depending on which volume is there, it's going to be either page 849 or page 902, John chapter 16. And again, that song, uh, which I wasn't familiar with before Wilson had drew it to my attention not too long ago. An excellent choice and uh, just a rich and a wonderful song that declares the hope that we have in Christ, even in this world. And that actually might be a good one to sing at the end of the service again. Is that possible to maybe bump the other one that we were thinking of? Even the other one is a good one too, but I'm saying that to ask you and also to cue our uh, illustrious uh, wordsmith guy there on the screen. Thank you. I'm getting the thumbs up from him, my own son Zach back there. So we'll sing that again after we're done with our service or near the end of our time together. Well, John chapter 16, and this morning we're in verses 16 to 33, the last portion of this mission discourse from Jesus. And you see the title of the sermon there, Joy and Peace in Jesus in a Troubled World. And we are now at the end of our series as we've gone through the mission discourse and we've entitled the series Trinity, Mission, and Me, how the family of the triune God overflows with his love, light, and life-giving work in a world that hates him. And in the text before us this morning, Jesus is finishing out his uh, mission discourse even as he is soon to finish his mission of salvation. And I might say finish victoriously his mission of salvation. And even though we're coming near the end of our concentrated time in this portion of Scripture, our time preaching through this for the previous uh, many weeks that we have been, uh, we're only at the beginning of living these things out, right, day by day, both individually and as a church. And so even as we uh, conclude our concentrated time in this text, I trust, as it has been in my own soul, like seeds in your soul continuing to germinate and bear fruit. Well, let's hear these final words then, beginning in verse 16 and going to the end of the chapter. And this, of course, is Jesus speaking to his disciples, ultimately speaking to us as well. And he says in verse 16, the word of God, A little while and you will see me no longer, and again a little while and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, What is this that he says to us? A little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me, and because I am going to the Father. And so they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he's talking about. Verse 19, Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him, and so he said to them, is this what you are asking yourselves, what I meant by saying, a little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now. But an hour is coming 
Uh, I'm sorry, you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. In that day, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. Verse 25. I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day, you will ask in my name, and I do not say that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. And his disciples said, Ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And this is the word of the Lord. Let me lead us in prayer. Oh, our Holy Father, we thank you for the fullness of joy and peace that you have given to your people in Jesus. And we thank you for your spirit and for your word through which you guide and equip us in the mission that you've given us in this world. And we ask now that you would open the eyes of our hearts to understand, believe, and submit to your word and to know the fullness of life that you have given in Jesus. We pray that you would search and convict and and teach and comfort and transform and empower us for your glory in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, as we prepare to get into this passage, I actually want to draw your attention to another passage. You don't need to look there. But in 2 Timothy chapter 3, the Apostle Paul very vividly describes the fallen world that we live in. This dark world which hates the light of Jesus and brings tribulation for his people. There in 2 Timothy chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, just listen to what Paul says. He says, But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. And he goes on to, of course, say other things as well. 
But beloved, for we who belong to Jesus Christ through faith, those who have by his grace come to faith in Jesus, this describes not only the world that we live in, but this is the world in which God has given us to fulfill the mission that he has sent us on in Jesus Christ. This life-giving mission of proclaiming Christ and of demonstrating his love. And of course, it raises the question then, how do we faithfully fulfill this mission amid such a dark, difficult world that brings such painful tribulation? Well, our text today in John 16, again at the end of Jesus' mission discourse, answers this question. And Jesus' declaration at the very end of verse 33, when he says, I have overcome the world, that statement is really the crescendo, it's the pinnacle, not only of the entire mission discourse, but of the entire gospel of John. It's very interesting, Jesus uses the Greek word nikkei. You may be familiar with it. It's where we get our English word Nike. Imagine that. And it has to do with overcoming. It has to do with being victorious. It has to do with conquering. And it means then that Jesus is declaring his absolute, comprehensive, permanent, unchanging victory over the world. It's a statement of declaration to that effect, his permanent victory. And his victory is the hope of every believer. It is the hope of the church. And it answers the question of how we can persevere and be faithful to the mission he's given us, even in such a world as what we live in. And what we're going to see as we move through this is that the church faithfully fulfills our life-giving mission by walking in the fruit of Jesus's victorious mission. The church faithfully fulfills our life-giving mission by walking in the fruit of Jesus's victorious mission. Now it's interesting, back in chapter 12, and again, you don't need to look there if you don't want to, but back in chapter 12, near the end of Jesus' almost three-year public ministry, he knew that the hour of his suffering and glorification at the cross was almost there. And so he says in verse 24, back in chapter 12, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Now, Jesus uses a figure of speech from agriculture to illustrate the principle of life through death. And a grain of wheat, a seed, we could say, we understand contains a principle of life which only produces life-giving fruit if the seed dies. The principle of life is within the seed, and that principle comes to fruition if the seed dies. Well, Jesus, of course, is ascribing this ultimately to himself. He knew that he was the eternal grain of wheat sent from his Father to die in this world. And he also knew that his death would give birth to his resurrection 
which would result in the bearing of much fruit in the salvation of multitudes for whom he died. And this is how Jesus overcame the world. And it's the fruit of Jesus's victorious mission that really fuels the church's life-giving mission. And so this fruit of his victory is what Jesus is talking about at the end of chapter 16. And the main point that I want us to see in everything that we see in verses 16 to 33, I've really already said it in so many words, but it's this. The fruit of Jesus's victorious mission fuels the church's life-giving mission. The fruit of Jesus's victorious mission fuels the church's life-giving mission in this world. And so in verses 16 to 33, I want us to see three different fruits, if you will, that Jesus stresses, that his victorious mission produces in his people and that fuels the church's life-giving mission to the world. And what Jesus says here, of course, is still future for those disciples to whom he was historically speaking. But for us who exist today, who belong to him, these are present realities, even as we yet await his return in the future and the consummation of all that he has promised. But all that he says here regarding these fruits are presently the possession of every believer, presently the possession of the church. So we want to look at these three fruits and see how they unfold in verses 16 to 33. Here's the first one that Jesus speaks of. It's the fruit of permanent joy. It's the fruit of permanent joy. Joy that belongs to God's people in Christ's death resurrection, and all that follows. And he's letting his people know this. And of course, to these disciples, he's anticipating returning to the Father and then sending the Holy Spirit of truth. And this is the basis of joy. Now, you might remember or know that what we saw last week in verses 5 through 15, Jesus was telling his disciples about the Holy Spirit's coming ministry in the world and in them. And earlier in the discourse, both in chapter 14 as well as in chapter 15, he had also said things about the coming helper, the coming paraclete, the coming spirit of truth, the Holy Spirit. And in verses 5 to 15 of chapter 16, uh, specifically actually verses 12 to 15, he said that it is the spirit of truth that is going to guide his people into all truth. He's going to reveal to them things to come and he's going to glorify Jesus. And now following those words of promise and instruction, he wants them to taste and to see the joy that will be theirs when the Holy Spirit comes, when all of this happens. And so in verse 16, Jesus makes an intentionally foggy statement about not seeing him and then seeing him in a little while. And this, of course, provokes his disciples' curiosity and confusion as they, as we're told in verses 17 and 18. But Jesus knows their thoughts and he knows their questions. And he's designed all of this to kind of draw these issues out. And so in verse 19, he engages them. And then in verse 20, he emphatically makes his point. 
when he says this and he begins with these frequent words that are given for emphasis, emphasis and sobriety, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. You see what hope he is giving them for not only what they're presently experiencing, but what the future holds. Well, then in verse 21, he gives a very vivid and descriptive illustration about women and childbirth to drive home his point. And so he says, when a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. And the point of the illustration, the point that it makes is not simply that their sorrow will be replaced by joy, but the point that he's making is that the very event that produces the sorrow is the same event that produces the joy. So in other words, joy doesn't just replace the sorrow. The joy is replaced, or I'm sorry, the joy is produced from the sorrow. Again, the very event that brings the pain produces the joy, gives birth to joy. And then Jesus makes the application of this very clear and explicit in verse 22 when he says, So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one can take your joy or will take your joy from you. You say, well, what's the nature of the joy? Well, just imagine a woman who has gone through the travail and the agony of labor and then has a baby. There is a joy that is indescribable. It's a deep and abiding delight and satisfaction. And on a much higher, fuller, more eternal level, that's what Jesus is speaking of. He's using an earthly illustration to illustrate these glorious spiritual realities. And so he says, no one will take your joy from you. And so he's stressing that this permanent joy, which cannot be stolen, will be the first fruit produced through the accomplishment of his victorious mission. And this joy will then be what contributes to the fueling of the disciples' mission, of the church's life-giving mission. And these disciples to whom he's speaking would begin to experience this joy when they saw Jesus following his resurrection. And then their joy would even be multiplied more when after Jesus returned to the Father and sent the Holy Spirit, who would illuminate their understanding ever more fully, they would truly see the greatness and the glory and the goodness and the grace of Jesus. They would see him in the most fullest way at that point and understand more of the nature of his saving mission. And so indeed, present sorrow would give birth to future joy. Now Jesus had already spoken about the coming of full joy for the disciples back in chapter 15 and verse 11. And there he spoke of joy in connection with their abiding in him and his father's love through faith and obedience. 
And this permanent joy in Christ through faith in his death, resurrection, and glorification, beloved, it is the full possession of every believer, including you and me today, including you and me this very moment if we belong to Christ. This joy in Jesus' resurrected life is part of what God uses then to fuel our faithfulness in the mission that he has entrusted to us. As we demonstrate his love in loving one another and loving others in the world, and as we seek to bear witness of him in proclaiming Jesus to those who don't know him. I want you to hear how Peter describes this joy in 1 Peter chapter 1. And again, think of this in Peter's own life and all that Peter himself experienced even against the backdrop of his tragic failure in denying Jesus at the hour of his crucifixion. But listen to what Jesus says and see how this is connected with even the experience of grief and sorrow and the trials that we face. So he says in 1 Peter 1, I'm going to read verses 3 through 9. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And then in verse 6 he continues he says in this you rejoice in this living hope in this salvation in this inheritance that we have in heaven in this you rejoice though now for a little while. Interesting where he got that phrase. He says, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He says, though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. He's speaking of the very joy that Jesus is speaking of in John chapter 16. And Peter has come to experience that and know that. And he wants all of God's people to know and experience that as well. And such true spiritual joy in the fullness of God's saving work through the Father, through the Son, through the Holy Spirit is one of the distinguishing marks of we who belong to Christ. And it's not absent from the grief of trials, sorrows that we do experience now for a time. We don't deny those. We don't act like they're not real. They're very real and they're very deep and they're very painful. But there's a deeper joy that is to be known. There's a deeper, fuller joy in Christ of what he is doing even through the pain. When we will see in eternity how he uses all of the pain that he's ordained in our lives for his good purposes, for a fullness of joy that is indescribable and that we cannot even fathom. I don't need to 
go into detail about what a joyless world we live in. I seem to notice it more fully. You know, you're driving and and people just don't look happy or you're at the store and everybody's just, you know, waiting for the best position. And there's just a seething anger and sadness and joylessness and grumpiness and frumpiness. And and, and that just is indicative of the fact people are alienated ultimately from God. And we can fall into that as well. Even we who are believers that we lose sight of Christ and we look for joy in other things or in other people rather than in Him. Well, the first fruit of His victorious mission is this permanent joy that is the blessing and privilege of every believer. Well, this joy gives birth to a second fruit that we see, and I'll call this confident prayer. Confident prayer. And this is what we see in verses 23 to 28. The permanent, full joy that believers have in Christ is deeply connected with this second fruit of confident prayer, of confidently coming to the Father in prayer in the assurance of His love for us and the assurance of His eagerness and willingness to supply all that is necessary for us in the mission that He has called us to fulfill. This is confident prayer. And so listen to what Jesus says in verse 23. In that day, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. You know, it's interesting from verses 16 to 33 uh, within this whole passage, what he says there at the beginning or in the middle of verse 24 about asking, that's the first imperative. That's the first command of the whole passage. Ask, pray, seek the Father, and you will receive, he says, that your joy may be full. And again, see how joy in Christ is deeply connected with the privilege of confident prayer. Well, then hear what Jesus goes on to say, verse 25. He says, I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. Now, Jesus used figures of speech, all kinds of things throughout his life and ministry. Various illustrations, parables, word pictures. Uh, We know of many of them, of course, even in the Gospel of John. In John chapter 10, he says, I am the door. And he says, I am the good shepherd. As I made reference in John chapter 12, he is identifying himself as the grain of wheat. In chapter 15, he speaks about the vine and the branches. And of course, even as we just saw here in chapter 16, he speaks about women and childbirth. He uses all kinds of figures of speech. But what he's promising here is that there's going to come a time in the future, meaning when he's glorified and when the Holy Spirit comes, when he'll speak plainly about the Father. And so he goes on to say in verse 26, In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. He says, I came from the Father, have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. And with what he says there, by the way, in verse 28, he is saying that he's finishing his mission and he's returning to the Father. 
And as his disciples and ultimately the whole church are about to commence their life-giving mission from him in the world, they'll need to continue to employ this privilege of confident prayer to their loving Father, trusting him to supply what is needed to fulfill our mission. And so with joy, this confident prayer will fuel our faithfulness. Now, you may know that already throughout his mission discourse earlier, Jesus had said much about prayer as well. He speaks about it in chapter 14. He speaks about it again in chapter 15. And this is prayer that is aligned with and submitted to his name. That's not a magic formula to use in praying, but it carries the truth of of being aligned with his person and his purpose and his mission and his word and his work. And the point that he stresses in chapter 16 then regarding prayer, especially in verses 26 and 27, is that prayer can be confident because the Father himself loves his people. The Father himself loves his people. It's not that love for and belief in Christ earns the Father's love, as you might be tempted to understand that, but the intent and implication is that such love for Christ and belief in Christ demonstrates that one has come to know the Father's love in Christ. And he loves us. And what a comforting What assuring truth this is that not only Jesus loves us, but the Father loves us who belong to him as well. Indeed, think about even what John 3 verse 16 says, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever would believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. You see, it was the Father's love that motivated him to send his son Jesus to accomplish salvation for all who would believe. Maybe you have encountered and maybe you have thought this way yourself, uh, a tragic and a distorted and a debilitating view that is prevalent among many, many Christians that the Father is really nothing but a wrathful, vengeful, sort of out of control judge who is just seething with eagerness to slam down judgment and condemnation on wicked sinners like you and me. Maybe you've encountered folks who believe that. Maybe you've believed that and felt like that yourself. You know, there's this big, bad, mean, grisly God of the Old Testament who does nothing but just judge everybody. And and it's not till the New Testament where we finally get a, a loving God. Well, beloved, it's the same holy, loving God throughout all of his word. But we get the idea sometimes that, you know, Jesus is just sort of standing in the gap between us and God and and sort of holding God back from pouring out the wrath and the judgment that he really, really, really wants to. And Jesus is just, no, no, please, please don't. It's, uh, it's, It's okay. Well, of course, we understand the Father is a just judge who will punish sin. But it's the Father's own holy love and mercy and compassion and design that has prompted him to give his son Jesus for sinners. And that's why for all who trust Jesus as their sin-bearing substitute, who in the Father's love satisfies the Father's wrath for sin, in trusting Jesus there's 
forgiveness. There's reconciliation. There's adoption into God's family and 10,000 other blessings as well. And so John, in the letter of 1 John, would declare in chapter 3, verse 1, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so, beloved, this is why we can confidently pray because we can be assured of the Father's own love for us. It is He who sent Jesus for us. And how we need to confidently pray, don't we? Why? Because we have great needs. We should be praying in the same way that we we breathe. It is absolutely essential to our life. And if we're to be faithful in the life-giving mission of bearing witness of Jesus in a world that hates Him, we have to have God's help. It's humanly impossible. As Jesus had said earlier in chapter 15, apart from Him, we can't do anything. Apart from God's help, every single one of us are desperately poor and needy. We're spiritually weak and inadequate. We cannot conquer our own sin. We cannot conquer the world. We cannot conquer Satan. We are poor and needy in and of ourselves. We constantly need God's mercy and His grace and His strength and His wisdom and His righteousness and boldness and courage and guidance and and everything that we need that He so abundantly supplies if we would but ask. If we would but ask. Now sometimes, much like a woman in labor, there is a lot of travail in our lives and a lot of agony even as we're praying. I don't think it's incidental or insignificant that the longest book in Scripture is what? It's a prayer book, the book of Psalms, to teach us how to seek God in every situation and circumstance and pour out our hearts to Him, but to do so confidently in the assurance that He loves us, and that He's demonstrated His love in giving Jesus for us. And so, this is the confident prayer that we are to be uh, sharing in, not as a matter of duty, as a matter of just life. Father, thank You that You want to hear my prayers. Thank You that I can pour my soul before You, even when I don't really know what to say, but that You understand, and to seek Him for the help we so desperately need. So confident prayer is one of the fruits along with permanent joy and all of this leads to the third fruit that we see in our text in verses 29 to 33 and it's this, peaceful courage, peaceful courage. Now it's interesting how Jesus makes this point in verses 29 to 33 because he does so by gently but definitively rebuking his disciples' ignorance and arrogance. But he's ultimately even in this wanting to communicate them that they can know his peace and have courage in knowing that peace. That's why I say peaceful courage. Now watch how this happens. In response to what Jesus just said about talking plainly in verse 29, listen to what we read, or he said that earlier, and then listen to what we read in verse 29. His disciples said, Ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. And then Jesus says in verse 31, do you now believe? What's going on here? 
Well, Jesus perfectly knew their hearts. And he perfectly knew their true spiritual condition. And he knew that their statements in verses 29 and 30 were really an expression of overconfidence in themselves and their faith. They're sort of saying, Jesus, we got it. We believe. We're, we're there. We're with you. We got it. We're ready to go. And he's saying, no, do you really believe? Now, he had affirmed their faith, and they did indeed have real faith, but it was very weak faith. It was very self-oriented faith, as it often is for many of us, if we're honest as well. And so he addresses their overconfidence, and really in the exact same way that Jesus had used Peter's own words as a rhetorical question to rebuke him at the end of chapter 13 when Peter said that he would lay down his life for him and Jesus responded by saying, oh, Peter, will you lay down your life for me? He's taking Peter's own words and here he's taking the disciples' own words to ask a rhetorical question in order to rebuke them because he wants to strengthen their faith. He wants to purify their faith. And so, yes, they did believe in Jesus at one level, but he knew it was a very weak and inadequate faith that was unprepared to face the tribulations that they were about to experience. You see, again, their faith was more in themselves and their own faith than it was actually in Jesus. And so he rebukes them with this question, and then he tells them plainly, interestingly enough, in verse 32, what they're about to do. So he says in verse 32, Behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone, yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. Now just think about this for a moment, even in terms of what Jesus himself is experiencing. He knows the fullest measure of everything that is coming upon him. And so he knows that his disciples themselves are going to run for the hills in just a matter of, of literally probably minutes, if not just a couple of hours. And how sad for him, even though he knows the Father is with him. That he knows he's going to be deserted by these men that he has poured his life into for three years. But gloriously, this is not the end of the story. You see, he understands that everything he's about to experience at the cross, including being abandoned by his disciples, it's all part of the Father's sovereign design and purpose for him. And he also knows, just as he did with Peter, that the failure of his disciples that's about to happen is not going to be final. It's going to become a means of their deeper growth. And so he brings this entire mission discourse, all of his words of preparation and instruction and comfort and promise, he brings it all to a close by saying what he says in verse 33. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. He's just told them that they're going to desert him, but he yet wants them to know they're going to eventually experience his peace. And then he goes on to say in the world, you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. 
There's a sense in which he's saying to his men, whom he identifies as little children back in chapter 13, and the same is true for us. We're little children before the Lord, the church. He says, in essence, in yourselves, you're not going to have any peace in yourselves. You're not going to have any peace in this world of tribulation either. In fact, you're only going to have tribulation and trouble in the world. And remember, Jesus had spoke uh, very uh, specifically and in much detail about that from chapter 15, verse 18, through the beginning of chapter 14, or I'm sorry, the beginning of chapter 16, about the world's hate and the world's hostility and the world's persecution that would come against them. But he's saying, little children, in a little while the day is coming when you will learn that peaceful courage, peaceful courage isn't found in your own failing strength and efforts, nor is peaceful courage found in this troubled world. It's found only in me. That's what he's saying. It's peace in me. It's peace in me. Now Jesus is echoing, expanding on what he'd earlier said back in chapter 14, verse 27. There he said, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. He says, let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. And so he's building on that with what he says at the end of his entire discourse. And he concludes, of course, by saying, take heart. And the sense of taking heart is to be bold, be courageous. Within this joy, within this prayer, within this peace, be bold, be courageous. Take heart in the face of the world's tribulations because I have overcome the world. And he's ultimately saying through his own crucifixion and resurrection, he's saying, I have conquered the world, therefore take heart. Take heart. Because in spite of your failure, which is about to happen, the day is coming when you're going to walk in the full fruit of my victory and you're going to be faithful. And that's exactly what we see taking place throughout the book of Acts. And so in just a few days, following Jesus' crucifixion, listen to what happens when he appears to his disciples. And you may turn over to chapter 20. I want you to see this. And we're, we're coming down the home stretch of everything here. But go over to chapter 20. And this is now following Jesus' resurrection, just a few days after what we have read at the end of chapter 16. <clears throat> and he appears to his disciples, these men who had deserted him, and they're still, they're still fearful, as we're told, because of the Jews. But look at verse 19, and I'll read through verse 23. We read this. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, this is when Jesus had risen from the dead, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. Of course, this is a common Jewish greeting, but it has a freight train of theological, spiritual significance in Jesus expressing it to his disciples. They have failed. They have fallen flat on their faces. They have shown their fear and their weakness and their self-centeredness and pride. What he says to them is, men, I died for all of that. I've covered you. I'm forgiving you. You are welcome in my Father's presence. I'm accepting you. I want you to be cleansed of your sin, but peace be with you. Peace be with you. And he always says that to his erring children again and again and again. Peace be with you. 
So we go on, verse 20. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side, as if to demonstrate these are the wounds that occurred on your behalf. This is why I can say peace to you, because my father's wrath has been satisfied on me in your place. This was because of my father's love. So see my hands and my side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Boy, that's the understatement of the day, isn't it? What is that? There's the joy. There's the joy beginning. Verse 21, Jesus said to them, Again, peace be with you as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. There's the mission. There's the sending on the mission. Verse 22, when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. And so Jesus speaks peace to them. The assurance that through the sufficiency of his wounds for them, his death for them, they're forgiven. They're welcomed by the Father. And he sends them on their mission to the world, breathing on them with an anticipation of the coming Holy Spirit who would come to indwell and empower them, which is exactly what we see happening in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. So beloved, what we see beginning to take place in chapter 20 is, is the beginning of permanent joy. The beginning of confident prayer that the disciples will express to their Father in heaven in the name of Jesus. And the beginning of peaceful courage. All fruits of Jesus' victorious mission now belonging abundantly to we who are His people, His church. So that we can walk in this joy, walk in this prayer, walk in this peace and faithfully fulfill our life-giving mission of proclaiming Jesus to the world. You see, faith in Jesus Christ and the fruits of His victorious mission is what fuels our mission to abide in and to go for Jesus. To be obedient to His Word and demonstrating His love with one another and to others in the world and bearing witness of Him. Speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ and proclaiming Him to people who don't know Him. And we're to live and to speak with the same zeal and the ambition uh, with which John himself wrote this gospel as he expresses in verse 31 of chapter 20 when he says, These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. That's what our heartbeat is. We're living and we're speaking so that others would come to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing they would have life in His name. And so, beloved, this is the overflow of the triune God's work in us for His glory. It's the overflow of His love. It's the overflow of His light. It's the overflow of His life-giving mission. And may He give us grace to keep abiding in and going for Jesus to a world that desperately needs Him. Amen and amen.